There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. Sign was painted, it said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Woody Guthrie, this land is your land. The 1944 original verse. Everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the America of America podcast. Uh, if you're tuning back in after our hiatus, thank you so much for coming back. If you're a new listener, thanks so much for tuning in for the first time. As always, I'm Will Milam, and let's get on with the show. This week, we're going to be talking about Oklahoma folk legend and folk singer and country singer Woody Guthrie. Guthrie was probably... Uh, one of the handful of the most famous Oklahomans to come out of the Great Depression and Dust Bowl era. He was definitely the greatest uh, in terms of fame Okie, meaning uh, a person who left Oklahoma, or in this case, Texas, during the Dust Bowl to go to California in search of work. Woody Guthrie is probably uh, the most famous Okie, and he came to be considered a personification of Tom Joe, the characters from the character from the Grapes of Wrath, but he led a very interesting, a very revolutionary, and in sadly a very tragic life, uh, which I would like to document here. To begin, Guthrie was born on July fourteenth, nineteen twelve, in a small town called Okima, Oklahoma. Okima is a town east of Oklahoma City with a long history that is pervaded by uh, the switching of allegiances. Originally as an Osage and a Quapaw town, it would be reassigned after being ceded to the United States to the Creek Nation and then to a subset of the Muscogee Creek Nation. To add to the complexity, Okima itself is named after a Kickapoo chief. Though Okima changed hands a lot during its original settlement. The civilizing of the town was a bit harder. And unfortunately, when situations like that happen, there tends to be a lot of vigilantism, especially at a particularly racially strife period of the United States where there was a lot of anti-black racism. And the year before uh, Woody Guthrie was born, there was what's now a notorious lynching of Laura and L.D. Nelson, where a 35-year-old woman, Laura Nelson, and her teenage son, L.D., were accused of killing a white police officer, they themselves were African-American, and were taken from the Okima jail by a lynch mob and hung from a nearby suspension bridge. And like I said, this event happened the year prior to Woody Guthrie's birth and would probably uh, stay with him in his political consciousness growing up. Later on in his life, Guthrie would write several songs about this lynching in particular, especially in the 19 period, not, excuse me, the 1950s where Guthrie was going through a particularly politically tense period in his artistic creations. Guthrie himself was born on 
kind of an ominous day, uh, considering the, the period, the uh, the direction that his life took. Being born on the 14th of July, Woody Guthrie's birthday shares the uh, date of Bastille Day, um, where the Parisians, uh, excuse me, the citizens of Paris stormed the Bastille in July 14th of 1789, setting off one of the first major early uh, events of the French Revolution, um, a series of events that you know, obviously you could say lasted at least until the end of the, end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, would come to not only define that nation, but really inspire uh, Guthrie's political thinking. So it's almost uh, as if he was born to be what he was. Guthrie's early life was marked by a profound sense of alienation that would go on to stay with him uh, for as long as he lived. His mother, Nora Bell, was suffering from Huntington's disease, a disease that would eventually claim Guthrie himself, and his mother's illness separated him and his family from the other citizens of Okima. Huntington's disease is marked by involuntary movements, dementia, and disorders of mood and perception. All of these affected Woody's mother terribly. Um, and another thing that was going on in Guthrie's early life involved fires. Uh, there was a fire that claimed uh, one of his early homes. There was also a fire that ended in the death of his sister when his sister got into an argument with her mother and her clothes were set on fire. And this event is shrouded in a, an amount of mystery and questions that will probably never be answered. But after the death of Woody's sister, the townsfolk truly alienated uh, the Guthrie clan, uh, further cementing uh, Woody Guthrie's feeling of being an outsider. Guthrie would go on to say poetically of his mother that she, quote, sang in a voice that not everybody understood. Guthrie's father at the time, Charlie, was marked by uh, the fierce anti-socialist uh, coalition that was occupied in Oklahoma politics at the time. Uh, we need to stop and kind of talk about the political situation in Oklahoma in 1912, um, because... Especially today, we get the uh, we get the notion that Oklahoma is one of the most um, conservative or Republican voting states in the United States, and that is true. But at the time in 1912, that that wasn't quite true. There was actually a very very strong left wing uh, socialist movement going on in Oklahoma at the time. Uh, Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party candidate, won 16 percent of the popular vote in the 1912 election. So the socialists were. Uh, uh, as close to a real force as they were really going to get to be in Oklahoma. So Guthrie's father, uh, his fierce anti-socialism was, uh, he was arguing against something that was a real force, whereas today, uh, kind of socialism in Oklahoma is really kind of a, uh, marginalized, you know, not a, not a real political force. But that really wasn't the case in Guthrie's childhood. Further, later on in life, Guthrie would go on to say that uh, his father was involved in the lynching of Mrs. Nelson and her son, uh, and this was something that obviously Guthrie had to struggle with and uh, obviously rebel um, against, and this might have also uh, played a 
growing sense in Woody Guthrie's understanding of himself as a leftist and a socialist, as being uh, uh, opposed to his father, who Guthrie would also argue was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. The end of Woody Guthrie's childhood was marked by his mother uh, moving permanently to an asylum in 1927 before Guthrie moving to Pampa, Texas. If you're unfamiliar with Pampa, Texas, it is a small town located in the Texas uh, panhandle. Um, it's also uh, a very common stop. So if you're listening to this from Oklahoma, it's a very common stop on your way to, if you're from Oklahoma driving to Colorado um, and you're driving through uh, that northwest Texas panhandle, um, you're likely to come across Pampa. Uh, so uh, next time you drive through, you can uh, know that you were driving through the, one of the former homes of Woody Guthrie. While in Pampa, Woody Guthrie would begin to hone his craft as a musician. Taking up the harmonica, Guthrie would begin to perform in front of crowds and develop a uh, very entertaining and Woody stage presence that he attributed to the Oklahoma comedian and humorist and columnist and our good friend, Will Rogers' Uncle Will. In fact, uh, Guthrie would go on to name his third child uh, a son, uh, Will Rogers Guthrie, and he would go by Bill. These early performances would be cut short in 1935 with the arrival of the Dust Bowl, which uh, we've, covered, uh, we've covered previously on this podcast. Not in depth, but uh, enough to know that the Dust Bowl was a series of dust storms caused by uh, weather and crop rotations in the mid-1930s, which absolutely decimated the Great Plains when going as far south, obviously, as uh, North Texas and Oklahoma, and would be the primary cause of the immigration from that area to California, which would create uh, the Okies. At this time, Guthrie was married and had three children, so he's got a certain amount of responsibility and he has to make a living. So in 1937, uh, Guthrie would head out west, uh, encountering the poor Okies along the way and becoming an Okie himself, Guthrie would go towards California. But on his way to California, Guthrie being a performer, a poet, a writer, and a song performer would really hone his craft talking and seeing the conditions of the poor Oklahomans and Texans and Arkansans and Kansans making their way to California. When Guthrie finally made it to California, he settled in Los Angeles and his status as a leftist and a songwriter eventually ingratiated himself in the highbrow left-wing sets of the 1930s Los Angeles. Guthrie's first uh, public appearance as a political commentator would come in this period where he started writing columns for the local communist paper called People's World. Here we have to digress a little bit and talk about uh, the American communists or communists in America at the time or communism in America at the time. Uh, I, I found, so I did primarily uh, my research for this episode from the newly published book Woody Guthrie, An Intimate Life from Beacon Press by Gustavus Stadler. I thought it was extraordinarily well written and extraordinarily uh, informative. And I thought 
one of the most interesting parts of the book was his treatment of American communism as opposed to the way that communism was propagated in Europe, uh, particularly in Russia, and then later on, obviously, in China, that a lot of the evangelical communism at the time was really wrapped up in a sense of Americanism that instead of being seen as antithetical to uh, the American political philosophy, that communism was to be the uh, the end point of the American Revolution, that the American Revolution was, in a sense, uh, ended only in uh, the communist state, um, which I guess it could be seen as the American Revolution being the, in Orthodox communism, there's the necessary bourgeois revolution that overthrows feudalism before the workers overthrow uh, the bourgeois capitalist revolution and bring about um, the socialist revolution and eventually the communist state. But I thought it was very interesting that uh, Americanism or the American founding was actually not a uh, bad thing um, by a lot of these writers for people's world. And they kind of used it. I don't know if they actually believed it or if they just used it as a marketing pitch to get members, but I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting tidbit and wanted to talk about that before we go on and talk about Guthrie himself. Beyond communism, Guthrie was also having to write in a period of America that was heavily, heavily stoked with uh, eugenics particularly eugenics as it related to the Okies, uh, because there was obviously an influx of uh, what you would call poor uh, uh, white immigrants from Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Kansas coming into California. So uh, explaining that in racial terms, because remember at this time, uh, it was uh, really seen as um, that your social and economic um, abilities were inherently tied to a certain amount of race essentialism, which was put up in this kind of quasi-scientific, some nonsense about, you know, the size of your school or some such nonsense. But the Okies were actually uh, heavily involved in this because a lot of eugenicists in the leftist set in California would go on to say that the Okies were, according to Sadler's book, only liminally white uh, and they would say that most of these immigrants are or migrants are Irish, Italian, and Jewish migrants, and ergo they are not truly white in the sense of the California eugenicist considered, um, and ergo the Okies are bad. Uh, Steinbeck, John Steinbeck, the f uh, famous author of The Grapes of Wrath and defender of the Okies, went to bat for the Okies, sort of. Um, he went to bat for the Okies by arguing that the migrants coming from Oklahoma were of good racial stock. Unfortunately, Steinbeck didn't go all the way and just argue that eugenics is wrong and bad and evil and is not something to be reasoned with, but is something to be trampled underfoot. But this was another set of the uh, of the great political questions that uh, that were in the background of Guthrie's writing and Guthrie's development in this period. Guthrie himself was anti-eugenics. Um, Obviously, having a mother who is suffering from Huntington's disease and eventually suffering from Huntington's disease himself, uh, Guthrie knew because at the time the United States was passing laws where the state could come in and uh, sterilize the seemingly feeble and unfit. And under those definitions, Guthrie himself probably could have been amongst the 
uh, a feeble who would be sterilized. So Guthrie obviously had a lot of personal interest in opposing the eugenics movement in the United States. Though Guthrie's performative beginnings happened in Los Angeles, he wouldn't stay in Los Angeles long, and soon after he picked up with uh, artist friend Will Gear and moved to New York, where he continually wrote folk songs and performed folk songs until he was eventually picked up by Alan Lomax, who at the time was a folklorist for the Library of Congress, who found and discovered Woody Guthrie and stuck him in front of an RCA studio where Guthrie would start uh, recording songs. And these songs would eventually become Woody Guthrie's most famous album and the album that we still remember him for, Dust Bowl Ballads. Dust Bowl Ballads uh, emphasize the, the, the full composition and political radicalism that defined not only Woody Guthrie's music, but his life and included songs, um, famous songs like I Ain't Got No Home in This World Anymore, of which the second verse goes as so. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road, a hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Though not on the not on a track on the Dust Bowl Ballads, this period will also see Guthrie compose his most famous song and most enduring song, "This Land Is Your Land." Uh, legend goes that Guthrie was listening to the radio and heard the song "God Bless America" by Irving Berlin, which uh, is a very upbeat patriotic song. If if you're an American, you've you've definitely heard it, even if you don't recognize it immediately. Guthrie thought that this song was over-enthusiastic, over-positive, or overtly nationalistic, and as a response, composed the song This Land is Your Land, which also emphasizes Guthrie's uh, kind of left-wing collectivist views, especially in regards to private property. Uh, In the cold open, I read um, a verse from that song that actually did not make it on the original recording, but was one of the original verses that Guthrie writes, where he specifically talks about coming across a sign that says private property and going on the back of the sign, and suddenly the private property sign doesn't exist anymore, meaning that this land was made for you and me. Guthrie's career would further progress uh, playing folk songs for dance companies and becoming more and more ingratiated in the folk scene in New York. Uh, and it was also here that Guthrie would meet his second wife, uh, Marjorie. And Marjorie would bear him three children and also be probably the most pivotal figure in Guthrie's uh, professional life and later life. Uh, the Gustavus Stadler, Sadler biography uh, focuses heavily, heavily on uh, Guthrie's relationship with Marjorie. And though I don't have the bandwidth and the time to really recount the details and the ins and outs of their relationship and its rise and its end. It definitely is something that uh, if you have any interest in Guthrie is something that you should definitely read and is clearly the most pivotal relationship of Guthrie's adult life. Guthrie and Marjorie met uh, regarding a dance piece. Marjorie was a dancer, uh, a dance piece that included um, some of Guthrie's music called Folksay. And at the time, they were both married. Uh, Marjorie had a husband back in Philadelphia, and Guthrie still had his wife back in Texas. But they uh, would both, um, well, Guthrie would move into what was called the Almanac House. The Almanac House was an apartment in New York City that housed the Almanac singers who were a close 
group of folk singers who included some very familiar names uh, that we've already talked about on this episode, including uh, Guthrie. And it was here that Guthrie and Marjorie met, and uh, they were fixated with each other, especially over music, dance, and politics. And eventually their relationship would become romantic. And many moons later, they would both respectively divorce their spouses and uh, get married. This relationship period would see Guthrie's most famous uh, work of literature in his uh, semi, semi-novel, semi-autobiography, kind of like a Romana Clef, uh called Bound for Glory, which um, is very uh, similar to a John Steinbeck novel-esque. Uh, I think that should be obvious because Woody Guthrie was largely considered to be a John Steinbeck uh, hero in real life. Um, obviously the, the novel itself is semi-fictionalized, but it would actually, uh, go on to be a pretty popular film in the seventies. If you've had a chance to see it predictably now we are in the early to mid 1940s of Guthrie's life. And obviously the worldwide event going on at the time is world war II. Guthrie being a fellow traveler and a columnist for a communist newspaper, uh, originally would oppose war as being um, as being imperialistic, but would eventually take the line of the necessity of the Allied cause as being against fascism, and also also because the Soviet Union was involved in World War II. Guthrie would go on to serve uh, as a merchant marine in the United States military, and by all accounts, serve honorably. He witnessed uh, he witnessed ships getting sunk by German torpedoes, and uh, really had a harrowing experience in World War II. His own ship, the Sea Porpoise, would actually end up being torpedoed on Utah Beach by German U-boats. Guthrie himself was unhurt, but a number of sailors were injured. But the boat did stay afloat. The end of World War II, or the Allied victory at World War II, uh, would at the beginning seem like a possibility for Guthrie's career to skyrocket. Uh, He, at this time, was already a very popular American folk singer. He was married with several children, and he was a member of uh, the Victorious Allies. But this seems to me, um, and I, I I think that this is true, to be really the turning point in Woody Guthrie's life where things start to seem to go downhill. Guthrie moved back to New York, where he took up an apartment with his wife and children. And soon after, he was struck with a tragedy, losing his oldest daughter to his, well, his, his and Marjorie's oldest daughter, Nora, to fire. Uh, unfortunately, fires um, were a very common theme throughout Guthrie's life. If you remember from earlier in this episode, he lost a house and a sister to a fire, and now he has lost Uh, one of his daughters, to a fire. This period also saw the beginning of the progression of Guthrie's battle with Huntington's disease, the disease that took his mother's life and eventually would claim his own life. Guthrie would end up in court for sending uh, letters with explicit sexual material uh, unwarranted to young women who were not his wife, which would include uh, newspaper clippings of grisly murders. It, at the time, was sometimes chalked up to the Huntington's disease that Guthrie did this, though. Uh, Stallard 
uh, argues, and again, I'm I'm not a I'm I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. But it, it I think Sadler makes the claim that uh, this does not actually appear to be a symptom of Huntington's disease. That, that Huntington's disease does not cause any sort of uh, uh, sexual deviancy. So this would have been by uh, Guthrie's own volition. To add on to this, we are now into the early 1950s, where uh, after World War II, uh, the United States is facing the threat of internal dissension from communists, uh, which uh, sparked the the Second Red Scare and the uh, the the great anti-communist backlash in United States politics, uh, including the now infamous blacklist of performers suspected of harboring communist sympathies or being members of the communist party and therefore not being able to be employable in American film and television and musical industries. Guthrie himself was never actually on the blacklist, but his well-known connections as well as his wife's well-known connections to people who were on the blacklist made his employment prospects also very, very difficult. So this coupled with the progression of Huntington's disease, saw Guthrie's career as a artist and as a musician suffer in terms of public exposure. This does not necessarily mean that Guthrie was being less artistic. Uh, this period that Stadler covers very well in the book uh, saw a lot of Guthrie's more experimental writings. Um, Guthrie was writing many letters, uh, scribblings and notes, and writing a lot of poems. Some of these were problematic um, in their, again, uh, some unrequited and unsolicited uh, sexually explicit material, but Guthrie was continuing to produce. Further putting a weight on his life, uh, his marriage to Marjorie would disintegrate uh, in this period, and it uh, it seems to be taken that Guthrie would actually uh, strike his wife and strike one of his children. And when the police arrived, it was agreed that Guthrie would go check himself into a hospital rather than uh, go to jail. But this being kind of uh, one of the lowest, lowest points of Guthrie's life. As you can imagine, Guthrie at this point is spending time in and out of hospitals, both uh, psychiatric hospitals and general hospitals. Uh, Marjorie did continue to write and often to visit him, and their letters are filled with both passion and anguish and anger, um, even throughout the the end and the uh, the disintegration of their marriage. Guthrie would soon after marry again uh, a woman named Annique Van, Kirk, Annique Van Kirk. This marriage would also end up ending in divorce as uh, Guthrie's Huntington's disease further, further deteriorated his health. Guthrie's career as a guitarist would end when an attempt to uh, use gasoline to start a fire, a campfire, ended up burning Guthrie's arm, and his arm would recover, but he would never be able to play guitar again. Over the next decade or so, Guthrie's health deteriorated further, and he spent most of the last years of his life in hospitals. Uh, he was also uh, largely cared for. His second wife, Marjorie, would come back into his life and be his primary caregiver in those last remaining years. And Guthrie would eventually die of complications of Huntington's disease on October 3rd, 1967. After Guthrie's death, his 
legacy in music was felt almost immediately, inspiring an entire generation of folk singers and artists, and most particularly Bob Dylan. In fact, Dylan would make the pilgrimage to meet Guthrie in Guthrie's later years. In the 1960s, Bob Dylan recorded a spoken word poem entitled Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, uh, pertaining to his relationship with the singer. Uh, this wouldn't be released till the 90s, but it, it's a testament to the, the impact that Woody Guthrie had on Bob Dylan's thinking and writing and performance style. Guthrie's political legacy uh, remains a bit more ambiguous as um, the old left of the labor movements from the 30s to the 60s uh, seems to be definitely a part of the American left, but not its dominant wing so much in the last 30 or 40 years. As far as Guthrie's uh, association with communism, Guthrie would always maintain that he was not a member of the Communist Party, though it seems that he was very comfortable around communists, in fact, writing for communist newspapers and being fairly closely associated to the uh, to the blacklisted um, members of the musical industry in the 50s. Um, it is definitely clear that Bob Dylan, or excuse me, that Woody Guthrie had very progressive views on race, uh, especially at a time where that wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, entirely socially necessary for to hold those correct views. Um, it were more ambiguous on what Woody Guthrie necessarily thought about uh, things in the Soviet Union. We knew that he was more um, of a fan of the Soviet Union around the time of World War II. Not sure if his views changed after uh, it came out about what Stalin was actually doing over there. So it's jury's still a bit more out on that, but obviously the Soviet Union was was a pretty pretty terrible place to be, um, especially at the and and all of what he got through his life really. So we're gonna leave it there. Um, I wanted, I hope I, I hope I succeeded, and that I wanted to use this episode to give an introduction and a, and a 30,000 feet view of the life uh, of Woody Guthrie, especially to examine what uh, influences in her, his early life um, made him take the hardline radical political views that he held. And with that, um, as always, I'm available if you have any questions, comments, or concerns um, at chautauquareview at gmail.com, which is available in the show notes. Uh, I'm always happy to uh, to interact with anybody who just is curious or you know has a question or has an idea. Um, I take all of these seriously, so uh, please feel free. Uh, with that, I'm Will Milam. This is the America of America podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for so much for listening.